Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in whatever channel Marshall decides to post this on, probably New Books in Economics. My name is Sydney, a host on the channel, and today I have Nick Marsh, who is a senior researcher here at PRIO, the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, to talk about his new book, new-ish book, um, Indefensible, Seven Myths That Sustain the Global Arms Trade. And the lovely thing about this book is at the end of it, I will not have to tell you where to go buy it because it is available for free from the people who made it with a lovely website online that I really I really appreciate. Um, so, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Um, and so why don't you just sort of start out before we get into the questions by sort of explaining how it is that you um, came to be on this sort of large team to write this book and sort of where the idea came from, sort of what is the story behind the story, I guess? Yeah, thanks, Sydney. Um, yeah, the book is quite unusual for uh, for an academic book at least um, uh, as there was about 14 of us wrote it so it was kind of a collective endeavor um, with Paul Holden uh, sort of yeah doing more, more of the work than the, the rest of us in terms of compiling it all um, and it was came from a project uh, that was started up by the World Peace Foundation uh, which is run by Alex Dewal. Uh He's a sort of uh, prominent scholar on East African security affairs. Um, and he, he runs the World Peace Foundation, which is based in uh, Tufts uh, University um, in Boston. Um, so he got together this group of people um, uh, and we had several, uh, you know, uh, multi-day uh, discussions um, in Massachusetts, also in London, um, sort of talking about uh, problems associated with the the arms trade, um, and uh, uh, this book uh, was sort of a project, uh, a product of that. And you know, the the World Peace Foundation has has been involved in several uh, several things um, since then. Um, most of which have been produced by uh, Sam Perlow Freeman. Uh, they've just produced a, uh, a sort of data uh, visualization um, on you know who is arming conflict. Um, um, awesome. And as I was reading this book, one thing that really sort of struck home with me is it really is organized with seven different myths. It sort of starts with myth one and goes through sort of myth seven. But um, Miss Six really struck with me um, because at some point last year, someone who I'm very close to, who I know for a fact does not actually secretly work for the CIA because I've seen her do her work, um, and it's very much not CIA work, um, 
and does nothing related to events at all, uh, told me that she had been offered top secret clearance, um, to which it began to dawn on me just how many people in the United States, I'm American for those of you listening, um, must have top secret clearance. And at what point does top secret clearance not become top secret or become sort of counterproductive? Um, and this is sort of one of the major myths in the book is that sort of blanket security does not actually improve national security. So would you be willing to sort of elaborate on this? Because it turns out that it was way more true than I thought. <laughs> yes, certainly, certainly. Uh, I mean, I think the the secrecy uh, surrounding the arms trade um, and defense procurement in general um, sort of lies uh, at the at the heart of a lot of the problems uh, uh, we can talk about um, later. Um, it is sometimes quite astounding at the level of secrecy. Um, uh, uh, for, for example, uh, last year I spent far more time than I should have done uh, trying to work out how many soldiers there are in the Malian uh, National Army. Uh, this was a problem because the number of soldiers is a state secret. Um, there are various estimates which diverge by a lot. Um, so basically, you know, I'm writing an article on the Malian Armed Forces. I don't actually know the basic information of how, you know, there's no official information on, on how many soldiers there are actually in the army. Um, uh, and we find things like that all, all over the world. Um, uh, it, again, it's, it's surprisingly uh, difficult to actually find out uh, what a country's defense budget is, um, especially in sort of semi-democratic or authoritarian regimes. The, the defense budget itself may be a state secret, so you don't actually know how much they're spending. Um, it may be uh, you know, a criminal offense to actually talk about the weapons that are being procured. Um, and so all this means that you can have enormous amounts of corruption, um, you know, maladministration, bad decisions being made, uh, and there's no scrutiny because there's no information, um, no one's allowed to talk about it. Um, even in uh, sort of democratic countries where you'd expect there to be more oversight, it again can be extremely difficult to find out, okay, what exactly is being bought for how much money, uh, and that's because oftentimes the contracts themselves are extremely complicated uh, you're not just buying um, 20 jet fighters you're buying maintenance uh, training spare parts weapons you know trying to actually work out okay how much does a jet fighter cost is extremely difficult um, uh, I've got colleagues over in the Stockholm Peace Research Institute um, uh, again, who have to spend a huge amount of time just getting basic estimates uh, on how much these things cost when they're producing their statistics. Awesome. Um, and so while we're, we're, we're looking at sort of how secrecy drives costs, um, myth one, and I actually think sort of one that I if our audience walks away with nothing else, they might want to walk away with this one, is that the relationship between higher defense spending and more security is extraordinarily sort of precarious. If it exists at all, um, it may actually be negative. Um, so could you just sort of like walk us through a how this could be? Because I mean, you would think that sort of if we spend more money on health, we expect more health. Like if we're spending more money on defense, we would expect more security. Could you walk us through how that it can come to be that that is not the case? Uh, well, 
I mean, as you're an American, the health example doesn't really uh, stand up because, uh, I mean, the U.S. spends enormous amounts of money on health and doesn't uh, get much out of that. But, um, uh, but anyway, back uh, back to defense. No, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the best way to have security... Um, uh, the best way to not be attacked by our neighbor is to have peaceful relations with your neighbors. Um, so, uh, you know, that needs to be, uh, you know, sort of first uh, and foremost. Um, certainly, uh, you cannot guarantee to have peaceful re- relations with your neighbors. So, uh, you know, a certain amount of defense spending, uh, I would certainly agree, is necessary. Um, if you're in Ukraine at the moment, I'm sure they're quite glad that they've had defense spending in the, in the past um, uh, but then certainly there there doesn't appear to be a direct relationship between how secure uh, a state is and how much money it is spending um, uh, if we're looking at um, uh, you know states which traditionally have very high levels of defense expenditure they tend to be authoritarian regimes um, which are also prone to um, getting involved in wars um, and here we uh, for the international relations um, uh, specialists in the audience you, you get problems with what's known as the security dilemma uh, which basically means if one country uh, invests a large amount of money in a new weapon system uh, that may then cause uh, its neighbors uh, to feel uh, suspicious um, to feel threatened uh, their response then may be to invest you know more money in their own weapons um, so uh, again I you know I'm not arguing that the world uh, would be better off if no one ever spent anything on weapons um, no can we stop that because that would be <laughs> can, we, can we edit that out that was a stupid comment um, uh, all right, uh, uh, all right uh, I'll start again um, I'm not uh, I'm not suggesting that um, individual countries shouldn't have a defense budget um, just that uh, an unlimited defense budget doesn't uh, buy a country unlimited amounts of security the world would, of course, be a wonderful place if nobody had any weapons. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> so I assume we can edit. No, 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 no. Uh, we can edit this yeah. out. But I actually think that sort of that mistake is one that like sort of we often make is yeah. that sort of yeah. actually if we didn't have weapons, we would yeah. actually live in a better world. Uh, well, you can keep it in, uh, keep it in as well. If you, yeah, yeah, no, no. But um, you decide, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, getting getting back on on sort yeah. of on track. Um, so you, you've laid out sort of compelling reasons that or compelling evidence that and there's much more in the book that more defense spending does not lead to more security. Could you talk through maybe briefly how it can come to be that they that they become so disconnected? Um, sort of you mentioned issues of corruption. Um, you even mentioned Ukraine. I don't know if you remember, but there is a good story in the book about sort of how Ukraine in the 1990s basically sold all of his weapons on the black market. Um, like the, the, some of the things that are in this book are extremely scandalous and well-documented. Um, but yeah. could, yeah, just like give us a little bit more about like sort of how it can be that they become so disconnected. Um, yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, if, if we come back to the secrecy, um, 
uh, point I made earlier. If you have little or no um, effective scrutiny over budgets um, from national parliaments, uh, you know, from the media, um, civil society, etc., it then becomes incredibly easy uh, for people to siphon off enormous amounts of money. Um, uh, for um, you know, in corrupt practices, um, so you can then see uh, defence procurement and especially the arms trade being a means by which uh, money is siphoned uh, around the world. Um, you you look at uh, for, you know it's mentioned in the book um, uh, enormous levels of corruption, for example, associated with sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know. Uh, for example, uh, you may sell uh, arms worth a billion dollars, then, okay, let's add 30% to the contract, and that's $300 million worth of bribes being paid. Um, uh, So when when you have corruption involved, you then have a distortion of what would be a normal procurement process. You're not buying the most effective uh, equipment for the most competitive price. You're buying what will get you the best bribes. Um, uh, So then you can end up uh, with equipment that is utterly useless. Um, You don't need uh, your, you know, your personnel don't know how to operate it. Um, And... uh, uh, I, I would, I mean, if we're talking about Ukraine, I'd actually argue in, in the current conflict, um, it, it appears, I mean, I'm just speculating, but it, it appears that a lot of the problems uh, that the Russian armed forces are facing uh, is due to them having uh, spent enormous amounts of money on, uh, you know, shiny high-tech uh, equipment um, and very little on maintenance, training, um, working out how to use it. Um, so you then have, you know, images of Ukrainian farmers towing away air defense systems worth tens of millions of dollars each. Um, uh, and this, you know, this would be an example of how, you know, the procurement process got distorted by, you know, financial incentives. Um, in, you know, in country, you know, obviously some countries are more uh, affected by corruption than others, though, you know, certainly in, in Western Europe, there have been lots of high profile cases of blatant corruption, including, uh, including in Norway. Um, uh, you, you still have issues of the extent to which you know the bureaucracies are and the polit- political system is being captured by interest um you know it does the bureaucracy order equipment just so that it can justify its existence um do you have politicians uh ordering equipment so they can stand up in front of a factory back home and uh, have lots of people applauding them um again are you actually buying what the armed forces need or are you buying votes if you're buying votes it's not very good for for the you know the the effectiveness of your armed forces Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about this sort of like vote buying process. This is not in the book, but I did look into this sort of as I was reading the book and being interested. Is that every year this is it's a small scandal in the United States. Every year the president goes and sends it's always a him his budget to Congress, and then every year Congress approves more money than he asked for for the defense spending, which is sort of mind blowing that it is the only thing ever that has come in with more money than was asked for and a refusal to let people make cuts they would like. Even yeah. sort of the bureaucrats who are sort of the officers in charge would like to make. 
Um, and the reason it comes back is that we're using, um, basically, I had internalized this myth that basically the United States uses its military spending as our only remaining force or sort of source of industrial policy. And can you explain sort of why A, this isn't true, and B, it's a terrible idea if it was true? Um, yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's definitely true that people are using defense spending as a way to uh, spend money uh, in places uh, that may not otherwise get it. And yeah, as we're saying, that, that uh, there's political reasons for that pork barrel politics. Uh, and certainly the, 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 there's been many cases where the Pentagon, the, the US Department of Defense, didn't actually want the equipment that it's being uh, given by, by Congress. Um, uh, I mean, the, the reason why that's a terrible idea, um, uh, let's say that you, you get appointed as an advisor to the President of the United States, um, and he says, uh, okay, Sydney, here's a, you know, we've got a $100 billion budget to, um, uh, you know, develop new, new science technology, you know, build up US industry you're not going to spend that budget on buying defense systems. Uh, that would be an extremely inefficient use of that money. Um, uh, in particular, defense systems often aren't much use for anything else. Uh, it's highly specialized technology. Um, for example, you, you know, enormous amounts of money is being spent on making submarines very, very quiet. So they can't be detected, but they're, you know, there probably are some civilian uses for that somewhere if you look really hard, but it's again, if you, uh, it, it's not a priority if you're if you're interested in you know stimulating the U.S. economy, creating jobs. There are much better ways of doing it. Yes, um, there are, and given that we're both academics, we would like to point out that most of what the military gets credit for inventing is actually things that come out of civilian inventions, mostly from people who are in their you know labs at MIT doing things that no one knew about <laughs> um, yeah, yeah definitely I mean um, you know, if, if your aim is to improve uh, you know national science and technology just spend the money directly on the scientists uh, you don't need to um, uh, siphon it via defense companies um, which you know remove a mar large amount of the budget via profits and payroll and overheads etc all right, so this brings me to sort of, you've mentioned corruption several times because it really is sort of at the heart of the arms trade, right? There just, there is no global arms trade without corruption. Um, but I, I think it's easy to, to sort of either not understand how large the corruption going on is or to imagine that it sort of happens somewhere else, um, particularly if you live in sort of a country that you imagine to be a developed and sort of like industrial country, whether that's true or not. Um, and I think the really thing, one of the things that hit home with me was when sort of you talked a bit about the offset system. Yeah. Would you just sort of like <laughs> walk our audience through sort of A, what the system is and B, give them an idea because, you know, corruption happens everywhere. It's sort of, I think people think of it as sort of an unfortunate thing that just hasn't been fixed. But in fact, sort of corruption is the arms trade in some sense. Like there, there, there are large amounts of things that are worth potentially trillions of dollars that have no purpose except for corruption in this particular business yeah i mean i mean certainly well the offsets work um 
uh, let's say uh, a country spends a billion dollars on you know buying uh, tanks uh, for example it then um, uh, you know th this this may not look so good um, so uh, for its national taxpayers so it then uh, comes up with a thing known as offsets which it says okay a certain amount of that contract um, will be spent uh, on you know our, our national economy what often happens is you you have say companies um, uh, would be set up by the arms company uh, to uh, you know to produce things um, and so the you know it, it's a way of seeming as if uh, the money's staying within the national economy rather than going straight back out again um, but what happens is very frequently those offsets don't exist um, or they even if they do exist um, they produce far less uh, economic gain than is claimed um, and again it's a way of siphoning huge amounts of money around um, often to the you know friends and relatives uh, of the president of the company uh, of the country um, uh, as a way uh, of uh, trying to justify what's happening I mean there's, there's examples in the book from South Africa for example so no 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 like I, I laughed at the South Africa example and then wanted to cry um, essentially what happened is that I believe it might have been a uh, Scandinavian, it might have been a Swedish, a Swedish, yes. Swedish company that um, was supposed to build, uh, what do you call them? They were going to build a few hot tubs in sort of like, I don't know, the 10th biggest city in South Africa. It was not a terribly large city. Um, and then put up a few signs about them. <laughs> and then they somehow managed to get large amounts of credit for every person from anywhere in Scandinavia that went to South Africa, including to see the World Cup for like three years. <laughs> it, it, it These things sort of like when they come out are, are so blatantly shameless that they're laughable. Um, but they really sort of are costly. Um, but let's let's pivot to to sort of another major in, or issue with the arms trade, um, and that is that these are in fact arms, right? You can either you can say that this is bad industrial policy because the uh, in the best case the arms are useless, but in the worst case, sort of often you're just selling arms to people who are known to be are at high risk of committing human rights abuses, or um, they could through even if they were responsible users, these arms could somehow come to be in the hands of, of people who are, are not, um, basically who are, who are who should not have arms. Yeah. Um, and could you just talk about sort of how once you sort of sell these arms, you either have no control over them or there has been no one yet who's demonstrated you could have control over where they go? Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, it's extremely difficult uh, to to control what the recipient of a weapon system will do with it once they've got that weapon. Um, you, the first problem is um, the the are the countries that are exporting arms will, you know. Uh, certainly those in Europe, North America, will say, okay, we've, we've all got uh, a very strict, rigorous process by which we assess the recipients uh, and we're not going to export to ones who, you know, who are going to use the, commit, uh, the equipment to violate human rights. Um, however, you, you know, a weapon system may last for 30, 40 years. Um, it's pretty much impossible to predict what will be done with it. Um, Saudi Arabia is, is a very good example I mean back in the back in the 1980s 1990s um, 
you know, very large amount of equipment sold there uh, from Europe uh, in the United States. And at the time, you know, there was huge amounts of corruption, but people kind of said, well, it's not actually doing anything there. Um, uh, and now, of course, we, we've got an absolutely uh, brutal uh, Saudi Arabian involvement in the war in Yemen uh, with all this equipment that were, they were sold in previous decades. Um, they, they are... Um, still dependent upon supplies of ammunition, supplies of spare parts, etc. But there's been pretty much no uh, motivation to actually cut off those supplies to stop them committing human rights violations, you know, once they... Um, so the, you know, the commitment there from the exporters uh, doesn't really seem to be very strong. Um, and second, uh, I... The party that receives the arms can, you know, export it on to to somewhere else. Um, uh, you know, weapons that, uh, you know, were supposedly sent to a country not involved in war, you know, all the time uh, end up in war zones. Um, people start uh, trying to work out how it got there. Um, again, it's the exporting uh, countries uh, can claim that, okay, we're monitoring this. Uh, we may even send people to have inspections. But even then, if uh, it, when equipment is discovered um, it, where it sh wasn't supposed to be, very little happens. Um, you know, there, there may be a you know, minor slap on the wrist, but it, it's not as if, um, you know, countries are blacklisted for long periods of time and not allowed to export import weapons and my understanding is that there is supposed to be a treaty on the um that's preventing at least some of this from going on but let's just say the book is rather critical of the idea that this treaty does anything um could you sort of walk us through what the idea of the treaty is yeah. and sort of what the reality of what it does is yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's the arms trade treaty, um, which was negotiated, uh, you know, by, um, in large UN conference um, uh, that was in 2013. Um, uh, so, uh, I mean, I... Uh, the. With the arms trade treaty, I mean, it's very much a case of the glass being half full or half empty. Um, uh, on the one side, before that, there were basically no global level rules at all uh, about the arms trade. Um, so uh, it's uh, in terms of uh, sort of making human progress, it's, it's good that we went from a situation of zero um, global rules to having a treaty um, with, you know, with a mo majority of uh, states in the world signed up to it. Um, having said that, uh, it establishes a set of rules, but it's the national governments are, are entirely responsible for implementing them. Um, uh, there's there's no way within the treaty um, uh, for a, you know for a government to suffer neg negative consequences for uh, you know deliberately sending arms to parties who use them to commit human rights for human rights violations for example um, the one uh, kind of enforcement mechanism is um, an expectation that each uh, state party will publish uh, an annual report on its imports and exports um, However, the, the treaty doesn't specify exactly what information they should provide. Um, and also states are allowed to keep their reports confidential. Um, so they don't even have to 
uh, even have to publish them. Uh, and what we've seen um, over the years is a growing number uh, of states uh, produce confidential reports that aren't made public, um, and a growing number of states have just stopped reporting or altogether. Um, so the yeah the the level of transparency um, associated with the arms trade treaty you know, has declined um, ever since it came into effect. I see. Um, yeah, there's one more myth um, or discur- discourse that the sort of arms industry likes to use that is not in the book. Um, and but I'd like to ask you about, and that is sort of the narrative that if we don't do this, whatever this is, this does not just exist in the arms trade. Someone else will. Um, I imagine sort of in America, it's usually China. But I imagine in Beijing, there is somebody out there who's like, you know, if we don't do this, the Americans will. Like, sort of like, I, I again, I for any of if we have sort of like Chinese listeners out there, I actually don't know if this is a discursive element in China, but I, I am perfectly willing to imagine that sort of. Um, justifying bad things by saying that someone else will do them if we don't is 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 a pretty common and sort of universal line of argument. Um, would you like to say a few words about this type of line of argument? Heard it several times from my children. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not really convinced when they say it. Um, no, I. Uh, uh, there's two two ways of approaching that. I mean, first is the the use of the weapons in armed conflict. Um, it isn't actually the case that every single weapon is very easily interchangeable with another one. Um, you, if uh, if a country that has been buying from the US or, or, or NATO members, um, it will actually find it difficult to switch to Chinese equipment. Um, it, it's not that interoperable. They'll need to get new spare parts. They will need to get new training to work out how to do it. Um, also, there's the issue of whether the um, equipment from another country can actually do the same things. You, you know, you have high technology exports, say from the US, that you, you know, you need to go to the US or another NATO member to actually get access to that kind of technology. So, it, it it's not the case that you can you know a country can in, you know, very easily and very quickly just find a new supplier um, without well without spending an enormous amount of money, as I said, on uh, you know training everybody. Um, secondly, um, you know, with things like corruption. Um, uh, I think an, uh, an important consideration is not just what corruption is doing to uh, you know the, the people importing um, weapons, um, but what you know what's that corruption doing to the exporting country as well? Um, it, it's not really a good idea if your uh, you know economic policy is based upon bribing other people. It, you're then not actually uh, focusing on producing a you know a high quality product at a you know competitive price. Um, if you're if you are relying on bribing other people, they they may decide you know if they uh, you know if they want to get bribed by someone else, then you don't have a market um, for your products. So. Uh, you know, I suggest in the long run, um, uh, focusing on quality and <laughs> price, uh, as every other uh, industrial sector does, is is probably a more um, more secure way to protect your industry. All right, thank you for that. Um, so, as we sort of have gone through most of the seven myths, we come to the last one, which is that um, 
Can you talk about potential solutions? Because I think actually Miss Seven in the book is that this really is sort of like an inevitable way of the world and there's really nothing you can do about it, right? They have lobbyists and sort of in some sense you could say we don't, which isn't exactly true. But um, I'm interested, could you sort of like talk about how this, this sort of could change um, and that sort of this is not actually inevitable? Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think there's two uh, two ways we we can try to change things. Again, uh, you know, the, it's something which would take quite a long time, certainly. Um, but yeah, viewing viewing it as inevitable uh, is certainly too strong. I mean, firstly, to go back to the secrecy there doesn't need to be the level of secrecy. Uh, I mean, certainly the exact specifications of a new weapon system, okay, you you want to keep that secret, but um, th there has been a process by which some countries have become a lot more transparent, um, especially about how much money they're spending, what their procurement processes are, you know, how are you actually making this decision uh, to buy a weapon system rather than having the whole process being secret. Uh, you know, the... They, they've been fine. This hasn't been a problem. Um, their national security hasn't suffered. Um, so firstly, um, you know, if people want to change this, they can try to get uh, get more openness, um, you know, demand to know why their governments keep keeping certain information secret if there isn't an obvious national security rationale for it. Um, second is, uh, I would say, try to... Uh, erode erode what you could call the national security exception in politics. The you know if if people say well this is a national security issue in some contexts uh, that then tends to shut down the debate. People feel as if they're being uh, unpatri unpatriotic etc. for asking questions about you know is buying this weapon system a good idea or not. Um, so you know, treat defense procurement like any other part of government, uh, I would say, to, you know, to the greatest extent possible. And that would be the best way to, you know, to try to change things in the long run. Uh, of course, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, expecting that to happen overnight, but certainly, you know, you, you've got various countries um, who, who have done that. And as I said, it, it hasn't been a huge problem for them. All right, awesome. So as we sort of get towards the end of our interview, can you tell me something that you're reading now? Or could you give our audience a book recommendation? Um, yeah, I was trying to think about that um, because uh, I'm not actually reading anything on the arms trade. Um, uh, so uh, I am though spending a large amount of time uh, being very concerned about the situation in Ukraine. Um, so I can recommend two works of fiction. Um, on that. Um, uh, first is classic book Catch-22 um, by Joseph Heller, um, which basically is all about the utter um, irrationality of war. Uh, uh, and certainly if we're looking at um, why have the Russians attacked Ukraine, uh, it's, uh, I find it inexplicable. Um, you can perhaps learn something about how the whole enterprise is utterly irrational uh, to have tens of thousands uh, of young men trying to kill each other um, uh, to appease the vanity of a, <laughs> a president somewhere. Uh, it, you know, it, it's ultimately an utterly irrational um, project, even even the even though, of course, if you're a Ukrainian, it's. Uh, entirely rational to to defend your 
to defend your country. Um, uh, and the second uh, work of fiction, again, classic one, um, Ernest Hemingway, um, uh, for, who the, for Whom the Bell Tolls, um, uh, which, uh, how shall I put it, it's, it's not necessarily that good a book in terms of how people usually think of novels. The, you know, the characterization isn't that good. Um, but as a description of um, uh, people fighting, um, I would say, you know, as, as a book somebody could read uh, relatively quickly, well written. Um, you know, it it it's it's all a bit, it, it, it's set in the Spanish Civil War in the thirties, but um, it, it's a very good description of you know how uh, how soldiers actually fight. Awesome. So for those of you out there, check that out. Um, and finally, what are you working on now? Um, I would say next, but this book came out in, I believe, 2018. So I assume you've been doing something in between. Otherwise, someone at Priya would probably come and ask you why you've been sleeping in the office for three years. <laughs> uh, not, well, yeah, I've been sleeping at home for three years <laughs> because that's where we've been mostly working during the pandemic. Um, uh, yeah, no, working on several things. Um, in particular, a um, big project called Disarm, which is on post-conflict disarmament. Um, uh, which is all about the uh, the uh, the difficulties and various ways in which people attempt to persuade uh, former combatants, etc., to to give up their arms, and how how you can negotiate um, uh, for you know for people to do that during a peace process. Um, uh, another project I'm working on is looking at um, sort of norms associated with artificial intelligence, um, and, uh, you know, particularly comparing sort of Chinese norms uh, and um, sort of European norms there. So. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this was uh, Nick March, and the book is Indefensible, Seven Myths That Sustain the Global Arms Trade. If you go to projectindefensible.org, or you just Google Project Indefensible and click on it, um, you can read the book online. It, lovely, it actually is very helpful. It says that it takes about four and a half hours to read. I can tell you that's about right. Um, it's really interesting. You will laugh. You'll be angry. You'll probably yell at your dog or cat if you have one. Um, and you'll probably learn something. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, thanks for being on the MBN.